I'm at the beginning of my 10th year serving as your minister. And over the past almost decade, I think it's fair to say we have explored a vast array of topics on Sunday services. But this is actually the first sermon that I've preached here on the subject of the Israel-Palestine conflict. And it's not for lack of interest. I've been following the developments actively for more than 20 years. And it's not because I don't have much to say about the subject. Indeed, I feel like there's too much to say. I've often told groups that I sometimes feel like I need at least two hours. I can either say nothing about Israel and Palestine, or I need about two hours to get started. And we also haven't been actively avoiding the topic here at UUCF. Indeed, in June of 2015, Mike Morris preached an important sermon from this pulpit titled Holy Land, Sacred Hope, Reflections on the Conflict in Israel. That is available in our sermon archive, as is every sermon, or most all the sermons preached here. But in the past, I did have a sense that so much has been said about the Israel-Palestine conflict that I wasn't sure what I would add that would be of sufficient value and interest. So what changed? In February of 2020, I received an invitation to lead a tour of Israel and Palestine through a company that has an explicit mission that we want to help people travel in a way that increases social justice, that increases the chances of peace and freedom. And one of their primary tools for doing so is the practice of dual narratives. This approach means that at many points on this trip, you have both a Jewish-Israeli guide and a Palestinian-Arab guide who are in conversation with one another, who are keeping one another accountable, and who are also open themselves to being surprised about points of connection or ways forward that might emerge in that present moment previously unforeseen points of connection. This model really appealed to me, and I wasn't alone. Within a few weeks of announcing this trip, we had the maximum of 30 people already signed up to go for 10 days to Israel and Palestine in January of 2021. We did not go. Uh, (laughs) As fate would have it, that put us in early March of last year, less than two weeks before the whole world was to shut down um, due to COVID-19. And back when I was still unclear about how long this pandemic was going to last, I was doing incredible amounts of research. You know, I've read a a tremendous stack of books about Israel and Palestine to prepare to co-lead this trip. And I planned to preach a sermon after that trip, right, out of that experience, as Nicole talked about how traveling can change us. And I'll probably still do that. I do hope that we'll eventually go, fingers crossed, for January 2023, two years after we originally hoped to go. But after the outbreak of violence this past May, I I felt led to go ahead and schedule this sermon to give you at least some of my evolving thoughts. And I say evolving because my mind has changed about Israel and Palestine over time, and I anticipate that it will continue doing so as I learn more as the situation on the ground changes. I also readily acknowledge this is such a controversial topic. We, we regularly talk about controversial things here, but this is, this is really controversial. Um, and it's impossible for one sermon to cover all the ongoing concerns. What I can offer you, though, is some core insights, experiences, and perspectives that are shaping my current view.
I have visited Israel on one previous occasion in the winter of 19. How many, who's been to Israel in this room? Who's been to Palestine? Okay, good. So some folks have been to Palestine as well. That's great. In the winter of 99, as an undergraduate religion major, I had the opportunity to participate in a six-week travel study program. We went to Egypt, Israel, Jordan, and Italy. I did not have an opportunity on that trip to visit Palestine, and that's actually one of the reasons I was particularly looking forward to this upcoming trip. Uh, 1999, some of you will remember, was a year before the Second Intifada the Palestinian uprising against Israel. And at that time, and for many years afterward, whenever the Israeli-Palestinian conflict came up, I usually found myself most sympathetic to what is called the two-state solution, which seeks to create an independent Palestine coexisting peacefully alongside Israel. Now, some people have been enmeshed in this conflict far more deeply and for a far greater length of time than I have. But from my limited perspective and experience, it has now been 22 years since I was in Israel. And I will be honest that as that, those years have passed, year after year, now decade after decade, my hope for the realistic prospect of a two-state solution has diminished. Some of the world's greatest diplomats have tried to make that model work. And at this point, there is part of me that hears echoing in my mind that old adage that a definition of insanity is to keep trying the same thing and expecting a different result. Now, you may be in different places, but I just want to be honest with you about where I am and why. I'll say more momentarily about what might other possibilities then be. But first, let me lay a few more cards on the table about where I'm coming from. There's a whole lot more I could say here, but I'm going to limit myself to two particularly significant and representative examples of influences on me. First, most of you know that my wife, Megan, is Jewish. She has family members who are directly impacted by the Holocaust. She and many Jewish people that we know and or are related to have directly personally experienced spikes in anti-Semitism uh, over recent years. Of course, let me hasten to add, it is possible to criticize specific unjust policies of Israel without being anti-Semitic. If anyone comes away from this sermon thinking I am a fan of Netanyahu's politics, you have misunderstood me. But it is also true that some people in groups have cynically used the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as motivation for incredibly cruel anti-Semitic attacks on Jewish individuals and groups around the world. A second influence on me uh, that fewer of you probably know about is that my primary meditation teacher for many, many years now is Palestinian. In 1948, his grandparents became refugees from Palestine in the events that many Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe, the disaster, and which most Jewish people call Israeli Independence Day. And here we find one of the many divergences in this conflict where one side remembers a date as one of their greatest triumphs and victories, and the other side remembers one of their deepest and gravest tragedies. I could go on to list many more examples of this, some people seeing six, some people seeing nine, and uh, as, as, uh, as Nicole tried to show us during the story. And that's often how I've taught and led discussions about Israel and Palestine in the past. Let's talk about British colonialism. Let's talk about what happened in 1948. Let's talk about what happened in 1967. Let's talk about the 1990s and that all happened before, during, and after the Oslo Peace Accords. Um, 
And if you're interested in digging into all those details, they're very much worth digging into. The most accessible entry point I've found is the fourth edition of a book by a guy named Alan Doty, D-O-W-T-Y, titled Israel slash Palestine. So that's one good place to start. But I, I want to resist, in the limited time we have here this morning, I want to resist the temptation to take you on a whirlwind tour of history. I'll do that again on another subject at some time. As fascinating as and important as those events are, I want to try something different this morning that I haven't tried before. And that's because the more I have learned about the history, the more convinced I am that the way forward for Israel and Palestine will not be found in adjudicating the past. It's too complex. It's too convoluted. Instead, I find myself asking with Dr. King, where are we going to go from here? We have to give up all hope of a better past. Where are we going to go from here? Chaos, he asked, or community? And just like in this country, there are lots of bad faith actors in both Israel and Palestine cynically seeking to sow you know, chaos. But there are also activists every day uh, on both sides who remain committed to the possibility of building a diverse, multicultural, beloved community. So as I sought to construct this upcoming trip to Israel and Palestine that, again, I do hope still happens, I laid out three core commitments for our group. And I invite you to consider these three core commitments and how they might be able to add our own individual and collective reflections on this ongoing conflict. Those three core commitments are pilgrimage, perspectives, and peace. I'll say more about each in turn. The first is pilgrimage. It was really important to me from the beginning to be clear that I didn't just want us to be tourists. Some of you may know the old proverb that a tourist is someone who passes through a place. A pilgrim is someone who allows that place to pass through them, to be changed by that place. And I invite us to approach this conflict over land in that spirit. Let's not just pass through. May we be open to being changed, to having our hearts, our minds, our spirits opened in un unexpected ways as we learn more about the people and places of Israel and Palestine. Pilgrimage. Second is perspective. Perspectives, plural. In the spirit of the dual narratives approach, we need to be open to listening to people on both sides and everywhere in between, because it really is a spectrum. It's not like just two sides. It's a whole spectrum. Along these lines, one of the things that makes me respect someone the most is not when they set up straw men arguments and you know, take cheap shots. It really makes me respect someone when I hear them describe their opponent's position in the most charitable way possible and say, I really understand why they think that way, and here is why I respectfully disagree. And so that's what I'm looking for, perspectives. So pilgrimage, perspectives, and peace. How can we advocate a transformation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that is in line with our UU6 principle? The goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. So in addition to those three core commitments of pilgrimage, perspectives, and peace. There's a poem that is really close to my heart that always comes to mind when I think about this Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or at least it has for about the past five years. That's when I first um, read this poem. It's titled, The Places Where We Are Right, and it's by Yehuda Amachai. 
Amichai was born in Germany in 1924, and then in 1936, at the age of 12, he immigrated to Palestine with his family. In 1948, he was a soldier in the first Arab-Israeli war. And as a result of his wartime experiences, he became an advocate for peace and reconciliation. He was often involved uh, in dialogues with Palestinian poets and Palestinian writers. The poem was born out of that work for peace. Again, it is titled, The Places Where We Are Right. From the places where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. From the place where we, the place where we are right, it's hard. It's trampled like a yard. But doubts, doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, like a plow. And a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. And when I hear that, I think of those devastating images this past May of seeing those bombed out places in, in Gaza. What would it mean to approach the Israel and Palestinian conflict with doubts and loves as our entry point? This conflict has often been described as right versus right. Right versus right. Both sides have legitimate claims and legitimate grievances, and if you are in the right, it is so hard to let go. Why should you? You're right. But the other side also feels like they are right, and it's really hard for them to let go. Why should they? They're right. One of the most tragic examples of what can happen if you only act from the place where you are right is the assassination of the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin in 1995. Because of his work for peace with the Palestinians, he was shot. But he wasn't shot by a Palestinian, right? He was shot by a Jewish right-wing extremist. The Jewish right-wing extremist killed the Jewish prime minister for working for peace. That right-wing zealot could only see from the place where he was right. And so it has gone decade after decade with both sides only often becoming more entrenched in the ways that they are right. But what if we come to see that from the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring? What if we come to see that the place where we are right, it's hard, it's trampled like a yard? But what if we come to see that doubts and love can dig up the world like a mole, like a plow. And maybe we'll find, not, not yelling, not some crystalline, clear, piercing yell of the one right true way, but what if, what if we begin to hear a whisper where the ruined house once stood? What whispers might be heard of an as yet unforeseen way forward if we are honest and vulnerable about what we doubt? if we open our hearts in compassion. I think about, you know, look at the, I mean, the Ireland is still a mess, but you think about those, the Easter Accords, that how they kind of came out of nowhere, that, that that could still happen in Israel and Palestine. I'll start with the single most powerful example I know of, of how doubts and loves might show us a way forward together. If you spend time listening to both Israelis and Palestinian families who have lost loved ones in this tragedy, it quickly becomes clear that Israeli and Palestinians use 
virtually the same words to describe their grief. They use virtually the same words to describe their grief. This shared language around loss can remind us of the common humanity that truly does run deeper than this surface conflict, as, as deep and hard as the surface conflict is. Regarding this conflict, I also find myself having doubts whenever I encounter people or groups who are convinced that one side or the other is almost exclusively in the right. And don't get me wrong, by all means, the current situation is untenable from the position of Palestinian human rights. That is, I think, increasingly clear. Something has to change. But, but how do we move forward in a way that is aligned with our UU6 principle of peace, liberty, and justice, truly for all, that keeps all who are concerned safe? I want to share with you two examples of what that might look like from a Jewish perspective and then from a Palestinian perspective. First, in May, during the outbreak in violence, I was moved by the risk that Senator Bernie Sanders took in an op-ed he wrote for the New York Times. Uh, it's worth reading. I'll read just one paragraph. The whole thing is worth reading in full. He said, Israel, of course, has the absolute right to live in peace and security. But he added, so do the Palestinians. They have the absolute right to live in peace and security. He said, I strongly believe that the United States has a major role to play in helping Israelis and Palestinians build that future. But if the United States is going to be a credible voice for human rights on the global stage, we must uphold international standards of human rights consistently, even when it is politically difficult. We must recognize, he concluded, that Palestinian rights matter, that Palestinian lives matter. Amidst this entrenched conflict, I'm grateful to see Senator Sanders advocating for the human rights of all. From a Palestinian perspective, I appreciate a book published just a few months ago. It came out in April, before anyone knew that this latest conflict was going to uh, happen in May, uh, published by our own Beacon Press, titled In This Place Together, A Palestinian's Journey to Collective Liberation. It's co-written by the Palestinian peace activist Suleiman Khatib. A way toward collective liberation in which everyone gets more peace and liberty and justice. That's what we're listening for. That's the whisper we're listening for with our doubts and our loves. And similar to that dual narratives approach that we explored earlier, Khatib confesses that, that as a young man, trying to, he thought that trying to address both the Israeli and the Palestinian concerns, he found that to be weak equivocation. And I can understand that as a young Arab man growing up in, the, in a devastated Palestine. For many years, he thought that the hardest and most important way forward was to fight by any means necessary for Palestinian rights and for Palestinian dignity. But he has come to believe that it is even more difficult to hold multiple narratives, to carry contradictions in your soul, to see, as we explored last week around the Buddha's life, that multiple things can be true. He writes, it is much easier to see one side of the story, to blame the other, and to live in victimhood, to feel that all the world is against you, that everyone wants to kill you. Over time, he has found that opening his heart in compassion and love, always with a fierce love for the Palestinian people, but also with a growing love for the Israeli people who feel deeply tied to the same land. 
And that has become his starting point, not the strong grievances of the past. He's found, as I said before, that when he just starts going through, let's talk about the 1890s and British colonialism. Let's talk about the early 1900s. Let's talk about 1948. Let's talk about 67. Let's talk about the 90s. When he starts there, both sides just get deeper and deeper entrenched. But he's found that it's different for him if he starts from this place. Our two peoples belong to the same place. Our two peoples belong to the same place. That's the first inescapable truth. And it is this starting point that some Palestinian and Jewish activists has started to convince me that in addition to the two-state solution, maybe that'll still happen. But it's made me give serious consideration to the possibility of, the, of a democratic one-state solution in which every human being living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea gets one vote, one person, one vote. Of course, with constitutional protections to ensure human rights and the basic protections for all. Similarly, there are important proposals for a middle way, what's sometimes called a confederation of two states, one homeland. In this model, each government would be accountable for the safety and civil rights of its citizens, but the borders would be porous. People could live where they wanted. There is so much more to say about all of this. As I shared from the beginning, I feel like I need about two hours to really get started, and this sermon is about 20 minutes, as one of my homiletics professors said in seminary. A sermon should be about the sacred in about 20 minutes. But the important point is this, both for Israeli, uh, both for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and in, also for any parallel entrenched conflicts in your lives, in the life of your family, in the lives of your friends. Where do you feel like only you are right? Maybe now, maybe in the past. Where do you feel like only you are right? And are you willing to take the risk of asking those vulnerable questions that Yehuda Amakai pointed us to? If I'm being honest, are there places I have doubts? Are there places I have doubts? And if I open my heart, are there ways that I might love more fully and freely in this moment? Because from the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place that we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts, doubts and loves can dig up the world like a mole, like a plow, and a whisper will be heard where the ruined house once stood.